0: the most strategic people in the country we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about strategicon please put your hands together for strategicon thank you very much andy
1: This is Strategicon coming to you from the Adelaide Podcast Festival. Hello to our live audience. Thank you for um, Auscast Network to have us here at uh, the Elephant British Pub, and also a shout out to our sponsors, uh, Omni Studio, Zoom, Young Henry's, Fresh ninety two point seven, and good evening from me, Dr. John Bruni, and to David Olney and Tim Whiffen. Good evening, everyone. And uh, yeah, good evening, John. Thank you. Thank
0: you for having us. <laughs> 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 so John, Strategic on is the podcast of Sage International Australia. Could you please tell us a little bit more about SIA?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, SIA uh, started in uh, 2008. Um, I'd just come back from the Middle East and uh, I thought that one of the things that we could possibly do Um, is to try to continue the sort of work that I was already involved with in the Middle East as an analyst. But what I wanted to do was um, bring something different to um, strategic analysis because, quite frankly, having studied what was going on in Canberra for a number of years, I started thinking that people were kind of like um, hamsters in the wheel. They were talking about the same thing constantly. Um, In Canberra, you have various agencies that are set up and designed to uh, give an account, uh, a sort of a critical account of what government is doing. But the, the closer you listen to that critical account, the less critical it became. <laughs> it all started sort of blurring together and, and you, you wondered whether or not, you know, the money that government was putting into these institutions were, was worth it, quite frankly. So what we wanted to do when we, with um, SIA is, is come up with a an alternative, if you will. And, you know, being a, being an Adelaide boy, I thought, well, the one thing that we don't have here in South Australia is a geopolitical risk consultancy, and so therefore I started that.
0: Absolutely. So you, you, you're the ethos, I suppose, of, of, of this podcast as well. But David, what I want to know is
2: what led you to your involvement in uh, SIA and, and with Strategic on? fundamentally had been friends with John since 2001 and we had sort of the same opinion and that was Canberra is a factory that generates people who can work in security to make sure the machine continues to run but Canberra wasn't doing a very good job of generating better policy Uh, on top of this Karl Popper famously said after World War II that universities had become the masters of orthodoxy Mm. so we were trying to you know, teaching universities and get better outcomes related to security to only find we weren't allowed to. Mm. You know, we had to teach ontological security theory. Yeah. And the only people that believe in ontological security theory are ontological security theorists, none of whom have a job. Try saying that after a couple of beers. (laughs) (laughs) Ontological security theory, ontological security theory. Okay. (laughs) Show off. (laughs) He is.
0: (laughs) So I suppose tonight's topic is why is security a primary concern? Uh, John, would you mind defining security for us?
1: Well, security is about as broad a term as you can possibly uh, think of. I mean, it, it comes down to the fact that, you know, do you feel secure when you walk out of your front door and go about your business? Um, because quite frankly, now in the age of uh, the post-9/11 terrorism incidents that have been taking place, uh, one can't always feel safe about what they're hearing, what they're seeing, and what they may actually encounter, especially if they're travelling uh, to far distant countries. So really, you know, it's it's all about how safe do you feel as an individual, and how do you uh, account for? the paranoia that seems to be around at the moment. There's a lot of noise that goes on uh, with regard to what we may think are potential threats uh, within the community, and I think that those things are now mythologized and we need to sort of pull back on them to a great degree. So I'm gonna put uh, your articulation in competition here. Would you
0: like
2: to add anything to that definition, David? Yeah, I'll go for a slightly simpler definition. The, The easiest way to define security is freedom from what? It's always defined negatively. It's freedom from something. And the something can be very tangible, like, you know, violence going about your normal day. So why do we have basic policing? But since 9-11, it's that freedom from terrorism. You're more likely to die for, you know, because of a bee sting than to be killed by a terrorist. So the problem with security, it's one of those things we desperately want, but we're terrible at analysing it. Our first response, you know, is almost always, you know, out of our monkey brain, it's an unconscious thing of fear and uncertainty rather than conscious, slow, careful, analysis. So the best way to define security is freedom from, and then we're going to talk about it rationally rather than emotionally.
1: Now, and and, uh, just to pick up on that, of course, you know, when... Our political masters get the whiff of security. There's always opportunity in security as well to make themselves look a little bit more electable at the next election. And you know therein lies another problem, and that is the entire politicization of, of security,
2: which I think affects every one of us in terms of how we go about our business and how we see our next door neighbors. So we end up in the, you know, the Copenhagen school argument that you can securitize anything if you're a powerful enough actor. And that's the problem is powerful enough actors securitize whatever suits their policy platform and their interests so we end up securitizing things because of an ability to manipulate media and opinion not because there was a genuine tangible rational risk one of the other
1: things too is that you know uh, media reportage leaves a lot to be desired in many instances you know i mean it's not necessarily their fault entirely because they're obviously You know, having to account for uh, the muddied interests and the various other interests uh, that keep commercial media going. But um, ultimately, you know, the whole if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality does um, feed into the public paranoia of, you know, from the most. awful kind of thing that we see in the Middle East to, to something that's far less awful in the scale of things in a Western country. So what we end up doing is we end up turning on each other because the media mismanages the message to a great degree.
0: Mm. I think uh, from listening to the both of you, what I definitely have picked up and why this matters is that more countries are in more tension than I think we are led to believe, and that it's a little... Unnerving. It's a little less safe than perhaps uh, we take for, take for granted. Um, so, I, well, gentlemen, I want to get uh, maybe some thoughts on some current issues, and maybe that will illustrate just what I was talking about. Uh, so recently, you know, ISIS has lost a bit of ground. Um, what do you think the consequences of that? Well, like, What are your thoughts are on, on, on that topic, I suppose? David?
2: Well, they're down to their last 400 metre by 400 metre village. There are 50 trucks sitting on the edge of it at the moment trying to negotiate how to get women and children out who are being kept by ISIS fighters as human shields. So it's quite incredible to have gone from ruling a huge chunk of Syria and Iraq with 8 million people down to maybe 1,000 people under their control as human shields. And yet, having lost ground, they're now more dangerous than they've ever been because nothing we've done has blunted the ideology. Nothing has blunted the potential to recruit new 15- to 25-year-olds. And the message has already changed in the propaganda that's being intercepted. People who would have gone to the caliphate are now being told to stay home in the West, plan, prepare, and when a good opportunity strikes, unleash havoc.
1: And this is the very thing that we were talking about before. I mean, security affects every one of us, and these are the kind of things where we need to have a more nuanced understanding of what's going on because, yes, there are very real threats... And those threats need to be accounted for. But at the same time, we have to also make sure that we don't fall into the same kind of um, problems that we had in the past. For instance, you know, um, if we're looking at uh, the ethnic makeup of multicultural countries, for instance, we had uh, issues during World War I and World War II against the Germans. Many Australians of German descent were quite loyal and you know, their sons and daughters went off and fought the wars and did all that kind of thing. Um, but do we feel kind of similarly disposed toward the Muslim community amongst us because of what we see overseas? These are things that need to sort of be unpacked, I think, to a great degree. Well, the
2: wonderful example at the moment where we have a a 19-year-old English young woman in a Syrian refugee camp just had her third child and just had her British passport revoked. So the Brits have at this moment made her stateless. There's no indication Bangladesh want her back. And yet her son is English. So the whole idea is So how do we resolve any of this without, you know, calm, rational debate that gets beyond the 30-second story? So, yeah. you know, the history of Strategicon is really us getting pissed off with the quality of journalism yeah. and going, you didn't do any historical context. You didn't do any economic context. You didn't set up the 500 years of cultural tension and then us, you know, talking around in circles for 90 minutes so people at least know why it's impossible to fix it without more resources and more interest. So
0: what about, let's move on to a different topic, what about the tensions between Beijing and Washington at the moment, that's certainly reasonably topical, I think most people kind of have an idea that
1: there's that tension, Trump gets that focus so <laughs> yeah look you know I mean with regard to this tension you, one has to wonder just how genuine it actually is uh, the Chinese own a lot of American debt There is uh, there are interlinkages now between the People's Republic of China and the United States which preclude the United States from setting up a Cold War situation as they could do with the USSR back during the Cold War now you know how do you set up a containment strategy with something besides of the PRC the PRC with which you had created to begin with. And this is something that I've been uh, discussing uh, vigorously with some of my colleagues overseas, and that is, you know, it's all good and fine to sit down and criticize China. We made China. In 1978, when they opened China, guess who walked through the door? It was Western industry that walked through the door. They wanted to make profit. They created this this nightmare. And it was an insidious way in which China has, you know, created this totalitarian monster that we have now saddled with. You know, what they're doing with a Uyghur population, for instance, in East Turkestan is you know, quite awful. They're using it as an experimental test chamber for all these kind of 21st century surveillance technologies. And they're also doing it to the Tibetans and they're doing it to every other minority within that country. And now with the one belt, one road situation, we're starting to see China's tentacles spread outwards, not just with infrastructure, but also with influencing other countries to take on its model of economic development, which of course, you know, would uh, lead us to assume that Central Asian countries would go down that path and perhaps countries in Africa and Latin America as well. That's not necessarily a good place to be.
0: And it's, because the one belt, one road, I suppose these kinds of uh, infrastructures is what fundamentally changes it from the Japanese economic growth model, which it was effectively its predecessor. No. Um, it's not just going to collapse in the same way because it has much more no, reach. Pro-
2: it's proper infrastructure tentacles. Yeah. And the other side of this that's very important is that Washington guaranteed global peace. Whether you like that peace or not doesn't matter. But global peace was guaranteed in the developed world from 1945 to basically 1991 by the Americans being willing to maintain it. They are losing that will. China wants all the benefits of being a global power, but is showing no willingness to maintain security for other people. So if you want the lollipop, but you're not willing to protect the lollipop factory this inevitably is going to end very badly. (laughs) And it may not end in conventional war. But when America is withdrawing and China is unwilling to take on the rule or the role of a stable provider of security, uh, of stability, of course we're going to have problems. And the likelihood is there'll be bloodshed somewhere and it will be messier than during the Cold War because it won't just be proxy wars. Because the Soviets and the U.S. were smart enough to keep things at a proxy level. Now, it's terrible to dispose of the developing world as if they're disposable. That was the reality of 1945 to 1991. We don't have a situation like that now. Things are now for keeps, potentially between more major players at both a regional and superpower level.
0: So certainly complicated. I'm sure that's something that you guys will touch on again and we can uh, perhaps get into a little deeper. But last up, I do want to talk about the upcoming US and North Korean summit uh, being also fairly well covered, um, reasonably big deal as well. So is the second one going to be a bigger deal than the... Than the first
1: no, or it the second meeting, scissors, I
0: mean. no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no, it's going to be a lot of show, a lot of hot air. Okay. Uh, the media is going to crawl all over it because it's a big news story. Because you know that President Trump is the human headline, and he manages <laughs> to attract all the attention. He sucks, he sucks the oxygen out of every, every room he walks into. Mm. Now, you know when the uh, w- w- when the summit takes place next Wednesday, uh, all eyes are going to be focused on Trump but you can almost be guaranteed that there will be nothing of substance that comes out of it because Kim Jong-un is not an idiot. He's a very smart politician and he does know that the only thing that he has dangling over everyone in in the East Asia area is their nuclear deterrent. He is not going to willingly give his only ace in the hole away
2: cheaply. And to just add to that, Beijing is not going to surrender its buffer against the West on the Korean Peninsula. So there was talk in the media this morning, how is Kim Jong-un going to get to the summit? Will he get on his presidential train and roll along for three days? Or will the CCP lend him a plane again, indicating that where he goes, he goes on the you know, explicit authorization of Beijing?
0: So what you've highlighted then is that this summer is not independent to perhaps the trade war between the US and, and Beijing and China and China?
2: Well maybe more about that in as much as mm. North Korea is a stalking horse for both sides to try and get outcomes that China and America can't agree on together independently without talking about North Korea.
0: Mm. Well, we've only met like kind of scratched the surface, I suppose, on these issues. I mean what you've said is reasonably profound and hopefully we can take something away from that, but obviously we encourage Everyone here to uh, delve a little deeper into the Strategicon podcast because there's plenty of in-depth conversations about Uyghurs and about you know the uh, the trade war and about the Korean situation, North Korean situation. So uh, there's lots lots to discuss there. But I suppose for the moment that's going to be a goodbye from us. And thank you very much all for uh, having us here. Thanks very much, Tim. <laughs> thank you,
2: everyone. Be <laughs> alert,